Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOUL. New SkyRadio.com. What happens when paranormal experiences call into question things you have believed all your life? Should paranormal research be approached as an academic exercise, a religious crusade, or neither? Do blood relatives have the same psychic reactions to paranormal situations? Well, hello there, and welcome to the 217th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben, and you might be surprised how tough those questions can be. So this evening, my father is going to take us through his first case. It was a case that changed his life forever. And he's going to tell us some things about it, and he has never talked about that before on the air, at least. No, I've never written about it. Anyway, uh, that's true, Ben, for sure. Well, it, where do I begin? It um, was my first case, and I have written about it in one book, and I've talked about it very, very frequently on the air and in lectures for many, many, many years. And it is the so-called Village of Voices case that I engaged in uh, in Connecticut in the 19, early 1970s, specifically 1971 and 1972. But there was more to it than I've ever written or spoken about before, and that was the personal aspect. And I probably have never spoken or written about it before because after I well, got through with the seminary, I ended up in journalism, and that uh, training and experience makes you sort of stick just with the facts. And as a matter of fact, I've had journalists tell me that when they've read my books, at least my first uh, two on this subject, uh, for, <coughs> excuse me, from uh, the modern modern times, the uh, faces at the window and footsteps in the attic, they themselves couldn't sleep because it was so matter of fact in its style. There didn't seem to be any sensationalism or anything else. But I have, in recent years, be either because I'm getting too old to care or because I see the value of it finally, uh, to talk about the personal aspect of these of these cases, which in a way will give them a whole new meaning. It certainly did for me. I'll, you'll see what I mean as we go. And it started with a, a sort of fascination with the relationship between God and the dead. And that started me off in paranormal research in 1970. I was a young student for the priesthood at St. Thomas Seminary in Bloomfield, Connecticut, it was a fascination in a way, though, that was mixed with horror because it had its roots nine years before that on a cold January evening in 1961, 50 years ago, when I witnessed the suicide of my own father. And it wouldn't be until 1971 on a chilly fall day at a long abandoned village in the deep woods of northeast Connecticut that I would begin to find a shocking, unexpected, and mind-expanding answer to some of my questions. It was a July 1970 article in the Hartford Current that gave me the first destination for my quest. In a story that usually would have been reserved for the Halloween season, the paper carried an article about an abandoned village in Wyndham County, Connecticut, that was long known locally as a scene of frequent ghostly activity. Now, what happened to me and my companions there would inflame my passion for the paranormal while making me question everything I thought I knew about it. I have touched on that in my writings. It also would excite imaginations all over the world and teach unforgettable lessons about human love and compassion. It would rock my world when it came to probing the relationship between God and the dead. Now, the newspaper article had a 
a story, of course, and a bunch of photography uh, with it, with odd streaks and globes of light among the trees, and counts of mysterious voices heard in this place. It also included a picture of an elderly local historian named Harry A. Chase, who had taken most of the freakish photos, he later told me, in the late 1940s. I spent the rest of 1970 hunting down what little serious literature existed about ghosts and ghost research at the time, and consulted with priests I trusted and who were teachers of mine. And I learned what I could about this strange abandoned settlement. Uh, briefly, it was located in the rural town of Pomfret in Connecticut's northeast corner, a lovely place. It was known locally as the Lost Village, the Lost Village of the Hills, or the Village of Voices. And it traced its founding to about 1780 and two men from nearby Rhode Island. Darius Higginbotham, quite a name, and Jonathan Randall seemed an unlikely pair of friends. Higginbotham, probably born in Wales about 1750, was most likely a deserter from the British Army who fled Cranston, Rhode Island, about 40 miles to the east, for Pomfret to avoid separation from his American bride. Uh, desertions like that were common in colonial America, uh, even after the American Revolution began. You know, the desertions from both armies were very common. Uh, the British soldier at the time especially uh, really probably came from the poorest of Britain's poor and didn't have much to go back to on the other side of the Atlantic, and they often would, would marry local American women and settle down here. Jonathan Randall was born in Providence about 1750, and he was just the opposite kind of guy. came from an old New England family and was somewhat affluent, a sort of gentleman farmer and a prominent citizen. As a matter of fact, he was one of two delegates chosen to represent Pomfret at the Constitutional Convention at Hartford, Connecticut in January 1788, uh, called to decide whether the state should ratify the new Constitution of the United States. <clears throat> one of many who feared a powerful federal government, uh, Randall voted against the Constitution, interestingly. Had he lived to see what the government's become today, he might have counted his blessings. Well, anyway, we don't try not to get political on this show. Anyway, the Higginbothams and the Randalls, uh, perhaps related somehow, established the small village that my companions and I were to investigate some 200 years later. Moving to Pomfret with a few African-American slaves, believe it or not, there were slaves in New England at that time. Not too many, but there were some. Uh, they built their houses, cleared the fields, dammed adjacent Mashamocket Brook, and built a small mill to make linen wheels for textile mills. This, this became known as the Higginbotham Linen Wheels Mill, and why it was named for Higginbotham instead of the more prominent Randall, I know not. Anyway, according to this fellow Harry Chase, they named their settlement Barra Hack in the Kimrick language of Wales, and it essentially translates the place where we break bread. I mean, you stand over a loaf of bread with a hammer and pound the heck out of it. It means it's a place where you have fellowship and take meals. I like how it's like two words and it's like a, like a sentence. Yeah, essentially, yeah, yeah. These, uh, I don't know, what people name things kind of give you an idea of what they're like, I think. I don't know. Anyway, what the population of this Barra hack was, no one can be sure because the census records from that period don't indicate what part of P Pomfret people lived in. They just say they lived in Pomfret. Anyway, these Higginbothams and Randalls, along with their immediate descendants, are buried in a little cemetery above this village, and a number of their more remote descendants uh, live in um, nearby areas of southern New England even today. Remember, I've had some of them contact me about ten years after I wrote the uh, first book in, uh, in 1998, and they were upset that I was writing about their relatives. Anyway, according to local sources... The haunting at Barahak was first rumored among the slaves who worked these cultivated fields. And after the first burials took place in the cemetery in the early 1800s, the slaves claimed that at dusk, 
ghosts could be seen there reclining in the branches of a certain elm tree. What is it with us and, and ghosts and trees? Well, trees are magical things. Yeah, they are. Now, I'm referring to the video you can see on our New England Ghosts website or on the show's Facebook page that we got in Connecticut in November. Uh, anyway, as with so many other small New England settlements, the residents eventually moved away or were laid to rest one by one in that cemetery. One story has it that Barahak was wiped out by disease. But the dates you can see on the gravestones there don't really seem to indicate any mass deaths in any particular time. But in any case, by the end of the Civil War, Higginbotham Linen Wheels Mill had given way to its larger competitors. The farmers were starting to find greener pastures elsewhere. The last burials, burials in the cemetery took place in the 1890s. So that was Barahak, a common tale and a typical history here in New England. Even the ghost story about the cemetery didn't distinguish it from too many other places in the area. But the stories of persistent paranormal activity centuries later, and Harry Chase's bizarre photographs did. Years after the case, I was amazed to discover another, far earlier account of peculiar happenings at Barahak. This one from the early 20th century, as the woods finished reclaiming the settlement. Uh, this was in a little-known but charming book by a naturalist by the name of Odell Shepard, a professor of English at Hartford's Trinity College, where I did some graduate work. His book, The Harvest of a Quiet Eye, published in 1927, describes the author's visit to what was already known as the Village of Voices. And Shepard wrote, quote, Here had been their houses, represented today by a few gaping cellar holes out of which tall trees were growing. But here is the village of voices, for the place is peopled still. Although there is no human habitation for a long distance round about, and no one goes there except the few who go to listen, yet there is always a hum and stir of human life. They hear the laughter of children at play, the voices of mothers who have long been dust calling their children into the homes that are now mere holes in the ground. They hear vague snatches of song, and the rumble of heavy wagons along an obliterated road, it is as though sounds were able in this place to get round that incomprehensible corner to pierce that mysterious soundproof wall that we call time. Unquote. By the spring of 1971, I had talked four fellow students into an expedition to Pomfret and had contacted Harry Chase himself. The elderly recluse, a nice chap, as I remember, agreed to guide us to the lost village, provided we were not just curiosity seekers, as he called them. Now, our seminary credentials helped convince him that we weren't, but in fact, I was probably the only one who wasn't. While my companions were serious about what we were doing, they really didn't know much about the subject. They appeared more interested in seeing if anything would actually happen than in my pet question. And that question was, if we were dealing with real ghosts, could they be souls in purgatory? In the good old Roman Catholic tradition, I've mentioned that before on the air. But this was 1971. No ion detectors, no digital and electromagnetic field or EMF meters, no thermal cameras, not even cell phones. All we had were two Kodak Instamatic 126 cameras, two 35mm Nikons, a cassette tape recorder, two sets of portable two-way radios, notebooks, and a couple of flashlights. My companions and I divided up the responsibilities. Roland Mercier and Gary Deshane were responsible for the tape recorder, Alvin LeBlanc, Mike Devon, and I had cameras, and each group had a two-way radio. We headed for Parfit on August 30th, 1971. I can still feel the heat and the humidity, and that was made all the worse by the five of us being crowded into a sort of non-air-conditioned 1968 Chevrolet. 
Up and down steep wooded hills, we puttered the 40 miles from Hartford to Pomfret, and we finally found the mysterious Harry Chase. The man was a walking encyclopedia of the kind that no town should be without. He lived in a little rustic cottage at the edge of an apple orchard, like something out of a storybook. Harry offered us a long lecture about the history of Pomfret and the lost village of Barahak, finally displaying some of the famous photos. And these did appear to show grayish streaks and blobs of light moving among the trees. One showed two friends of Harry's sitting on some stone steps. There were two splashes of light. Today's ghost hunters probably would call them orbs. One near each person in the photo. But that wasn't the strangest thing. Near the lights, the people's legs were invisible or transparent, and the stone behind them was visible. Go figure. Were the strange lights actually ghosts? If so, why did the camera see right through the legs of two living people? What did one have to do with the other? There was the first in a flood of questions that would change the way I thought about virtually everything. At last, it was time to meet the village of voices, and we all squeezed impatiently into the car and headed down a series of obscure country roads toward this manifestation of purgatory on earth, or so I thought. Now, without, without Mr. Chase, we would never have found the overgrown entrance to the old cart path that led from some... Uh, from the road uh, about a quarter of a mile into the upland forest. We didn't know what to expect as we entered this strange woodland realm. Even Harry was quiet. It was about two o'clock in the afternoon, but all of us immediately noticed two things along with the heat. There was an overwhelming sense of what I interpreted at the time as sadness, and there was complete silence. There were no birds and no insects. Birds often are quiet in the heat of a summer's day, but they can still be seen. And in the summer woods, there are always insects. We were about halfway along the trail to the remains of the lost village when we all heard it. A shout off to our right, perhaps about 30 feet away. Hard to tell in the woods. There was a relatively open woodland there, but we could see no one. I shouted, hello, but there wasn't any answer. Just deathly quiet. We all looked at each other, and Harry just gazed pensively into the trees. I'll be right back, continue on my narrative of the inner workings of the Village of Voices case, my first one, here on Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on CBS New Sky Radio, NewSkyRadio.com. Stay with us. Join Kimmy Rose on Interviews, Thursday nights from 9 to 11 p.m. Together as a community, we will embrace the challenges in life and find a way to experience heaven on earth. Spiritual teachers and Kimmy will bring you insight on how to change your life and embrace purpose. Interviews this Thursday night starting at 9. It's all about what's within you. Well, I started out down a dirty road. Started out all alone. And the sun went down as across the hill. And the town lit up. The world got still. I'm learning to fly But I ain't got wings Coming down 
Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOLD. New SkyRadio.com. Believe. Well, hello, we're back, and I'm taking the hour this evening to do something that some listeners have asked for, and that is sort of an inside story of a case that has captured the imagination of many people. The Village of Voices case of 1971, my first one. And we were just a moving into the forest toward the lost village as we took our break. Anyways, we moved on through the woods. There were more sounds not far away. There was a dog barking, sounds of metal striking metal, a cow mooing, people talking. We even heard geese and what sounded like chickens. We just assumed that there were people nearby, though our survey map showed the area very sparsely settled in the nearest house about a half mile away. Later that day, a thorough exploration of the area on foot and by car would reveal that we were wrong and the map was right. The nearest people were at a nearly unoccupied 4-H camp nearly a mile away. In the meantime, echoes of what seemed like other people's daily lives continued on and off until we arrived at what had been the heart of Barahak Village. There were a few cellar holes, stone walls, and a path that Laura led off to the right and down to the brook where the mill had stood. In, in future trips, we would find carvings of, uh, I suppose you might even call petroglyphs on stone walls and things. Very odd. The heat, the silence, and the sense of sadness were very heavy on that August day. The otherworldly sounds had quieted, only to return later as we split up to map the area. We heard domestic animals, a snatch of conversation here and there amid the trees, voices of children, and occasional sound of farm life. Barahak had been a busy place. The original Higginbotham family had eight children that I know of, and the Randalls had at least three. In 1971... 
sounded as if they hadn't gone anywhere. Down the cart path to the left and up a hill, we found the small, rough-walled cemetery where the people of Barahak buried their dead, among them the founders of the village, and nearly all of them Randalls and Higginbottoms. Some of the stones were broken and others were small and unreadable, probably marking the burial places of youngsters, farmhands, or slaves. The cemetery itself proved to have its own oddities. We found, after returning home and having our film developed, remember this is long before digital cameras, that it was difficult to take an in-focus photo in that cemetery. All the trees within the stone wall were dead. More was happening on that hot August day at Barahak than just weird sounds and the explorations of a group of increasingly stunned young seminary students. Something was happening to me. And this is what I've never written about before. I was beginning to feel things. I was beginning to have certainties. It was disturbing and very unexpected, especially from the viewpoint of my seminary training. But I knew there were people all around us. Not ghosts. People. And I knew at least some of these people personally. I was certain of it. It was one of the deepest human connections I have ever felt, and I could not explain it to myself. The whole experience had a strange, visceral kind of cosmic beauty, but at the same time it was deeply unnerving in a way that simply hunting ghosts never could be. I said nothing to my companions about this. In fact, I was confused. I felt nothing of death in this place, only life. The place was full of life. And I certainly didn't feel any lost souls or any hint of anything like purgatory. I felt as though I was one of these people. I also wondered if I was losing it. But there was that sense of sadness we felt on the way in. I wondered if it wasn't perhaps more a sense of poignancy than sadness. When we heard a certain vague male voice among the trees, I felt absolutely sure a Randall Another voice. A Higginbotham. Still another. Someone named Stoddard. Then, Calvin Palmer. The two founders of the village I knew about, but who were these other people? What in God's name was happening? I was astonished some years later to find out that I am related to the Randalls. Ben, of course, too. Jonathan Randall was a distant cousin of ours. And that was the beginning of a question that would occupy me down the years all the way to my own sons and all the way to the reason why Ben is sitting next to me today. Uh, Do blood relatives have the same psychic reactions to paranormal situations? And even more important, do blood relatives maintain psychic connections or even their bonds of love beyond death? Are we connected like this with ancestors who died long before we were even born? Even if so... Why the connection with those people I'd never heard of? At that first afternoon at Barahak, and kind of crept slowly by toward evening, we finished mapping the area. As unlikely as it seemed, we also checked wherever we could for evidence of fraud, speakers, lights, and most importantly, evidence of other people. There was none. We brought Harry Chase home, and after eating at a local restaurant, we made our way back to the Lost Village to see what we could see after dark. The sun was setting as we returned to the cellar holes above Mashmaket Brook. The katydids were buzzing airily in the trees. You know, those cicada wannabes who, you know, sort of sound like they're saying, Katie did, Katie yeah. did. It's really, it, it carries you along. Anyway, that was almost the first natural sound we'd heard there all day. Our plan was to head for the cemetery, cameras in hand. But as we spoke, another sound became apparent. Off to the side, down by the brook. Mixed with the mad drone of the insects was the unmistakable laughter of a large group 
of children. They sounded so natural that we at first thought they really were children. But as we sprinted down the slope toward what appeared to be the source, we picked up something that wasn't natural at all. The laughter was moving up and down the other side of the brook, which was about 12 feet wide at that point. It wasn't as if the invisible children were running. It was as if they were in a car traveling up and down the brook at about 60 miles an hour. Bob Zachary and Gary DeShane had the presence of mind to turn on the tape recorder. We were amazed to find later that the laughter had not recorded, even though we'd all heard it. Now, today, devotees of electronic voice phenomena, or EVPs, find this fascinating, as they're used to sounds recorded by various media that are inaudible to the naked ear. Our children, on the other hand, were a sort of EVP event in reverse. As for me, I felt the overwhelming presence of children on the other side of that brook, and I knew at least some of them. But somehow I could not place the voices. This was driving me crazy. I knew they were kids, not ghosts. I knew they were from somewhere else. And I knew they were completely oblivious to our presence. With a chill, I looked down and realized that I was standing on the very stone steps where Harry's friends were sitting when their legs had vanished in that weird photo. As I once again tried to deal with my own shock about these feelings, I noticed something about my then and their companions. They were flummoxed, yes. Frightened, no. I was kind of proud of them, actually. As a matter of fact, several of them later admitted a growing sense of solidarity with the people of Barahak as the case progressed, though nothing like what I was feeling. The children's laughter faded, and we pulled away from the spot almost reluctantly. I was struck by the physicality of all this. Ghosts? The rest of the evening proved uneventful, and we left at about 9.30 p.m. I say uneventful because we had long since grown accustomed to the background noise of cattle, dogs, and people, which started up again at dusk. And I had grown used to the feeling of being an unaccountable part of all this. Back at our camp at a nearby state park, we discussed plans for the following day, August 31st. We attended Mass at a nearby church the next morning, and we returned to Barahak for much of the next day. We also visited with uh, Harry Chase, the historian again, bringing our questions, historical and logistical, with us. It was a big day for photography, and the result of that would be some photos that are well known among many paranormal enthusiasts today. The best, however, was yet to come. This was the evening we planned to spend at the cemetery. We climbed the small hill above the cellar holes at about 7.30 p.m. We took up positions around the cemetery at dusk, and we didn't have long to wait before things began to happen. Although five of us were stationed at different places around the cemetery's perimeter, we all later reported seeing the same things, and we saw them at the same times. It was at the main steps of the cemetery where I was, and I felt the presence of many people coming and going. I was almost getting used to this. Throughout the three-hour period we watched, everyone reported bluish streaks or whitish balls of light moving among the trees. For over seven minutes, I timed it. We watched a bearded face suspended in the air over the cemetery's western wall. Sometimes it would move, as though a man was sitting there, studying something. But we could not see his body. In an elm tree over the northern wall, we could see a baby-like figure reclining on a branch. Remember that quote? When our pictures from the previous afternoon were developed, there it was, the well-known baby-in-the-tree photograph. When, many years later, I discovered that book... Uh, by local author Susan J. Griggs, uh, her wor- uh, I'm sorry, a different book that I was referring to the one previously by, by um, Odell Shepard. This is another one by a local historian, Susan Griggs. Uh, her words really sent a chill through me. Quote, 
These slaves were quite superstitious, believing that ghosts sat at night in a certain elm tree near the cemetery, unquote. On the way home to Hartford the next morning, the five of us shared an odd mixture of excitement and pensiveness. Our world had changed. Now, down the years since, many quote-unquote experts have told me that the ghosts of Barahak were upset with us for intruding on them, and that's why we had a, a terrific traffic accident on the way home. Incredibly, nobody was hurt. It was a warning to leave them alone, so the so-called experts say. This is the sort of spiritualist nonsense. Wait, wait, wait. wait. When was this said? Why don't I remember this? Well, you weren't there. You weren't, you weren't born until 20 years later. No, 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 no. I mean the experts that are like, you deserve this. This is, like oh, no, this, is at the, this is at the time before you're born. The, the, you know, even uh, you know, people who were associated with Ed and Lorraine Warren, uh, maybe they later visited this place, but they, 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 they ran into a uh, copperhead, which sort of changed their minds, and they left. But uh, some friends of theirs I met in, in the social capacity at their home said, aha, the ghosts were mad at you, and that's why you had this accident. Oh, okay. maybe you didn't know that we had the accident. I don't think I ever no, told you. That. No, you never told me. Yeah, that. Was, car was full of us. The guy ran. You know, we had the accident not because ghosts were mad at us, but because the, the, this jerk ran a red light. That's why we had the accident. You know. Oh, he's working for the ghosts. <laughs> well, maybe. Well, I didn't think of that. I have to have to look at that. Oh yeah. Anyway, it was a warning to leave them alone. The experts said, and this is the some same sort of stuff that I, you know I don't I reject today. Uh, the implication, you know, is that. As soon as we die, we become super beings who know everything and are capable of controlling events. Can pe- pick on people we don't like. Why do people think that? I don't know, Greek gods. Maybe I don't know. This, yeah, but this is like as soon as you die, aha! You know, you know, I guess it comes from Nietzsche, like the, the Uber mentioned and stuff like that. Maybe. Anyway, interestingly, from the EVP standpoint, none of our audio tapes held anything of interest. Only the ever-present evening buzzing of those lovable Katie did. In more recent years, researchers have visited Barahak laden with all the high-tech gear of the modern ghost hunter. The EVPs they've obtained include supposed exchanges in suspiciously modern English with village residents and even the big cheeses themselves, Higginbotham and, my, and our long-lost cousin Jonathan Randall. I wasn't with them, so all I can say is maybe and maybe not. I don't know. Back in 71, I knew little, if anything, about quantum physics and nothing about theories of the multiverse. All I had was my still early theological training, high school science, and the opinions of my early mentors in parapsychology. So my general conclusion about this first expedition to Barahak was that the voices and other paranormal sounds were the result of some kind of psychic residual heard by all of us at once by telepathic means. Now, how else could we explain the fact that the sounds wouldn't record? Rationally, we wanted to explain the other visual phenomena by some kind of similar process. Now, it's ironic that I was one of the early advocates of this theory of residual hauntings, a point of view that still uh, reigns high among pop paranormal researchers uh, today. But in 71, I didn't know any better. Then there was that strange, unscientific feeling that kept my companions thinking that perhaps there really were, quote, earthbound spirits and that Barahak was full of them. But what haunted me was an unshakable conviction, as I've said, that we were literally in contact with people from our past, and that, like, I was one of them. In an ironic twist, our schedule brought us back to Pomfret on Halloween weekend, October 30th and 31st, 1971. Now, I deliberately replaced some of our team, three of our team members, actually, to see if the newcomers would pick up the same impressions as the others. These new members, Marcel Mercier, uh, and Louis Latender, and one other fellow. Uh, <laughs> Louis Latender. 
Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. He, he's a, he's a friend of mine to this day. Um, anyway, they were kept in the dark about everything but the history of the village and the bare basics of the case. One of the most practical men I ever knew, Marcel, who was Roland's father from the first expedition, he was there too, Roland, uh, was a U.S. Army veteran who worked for United Technologies Corporation in East Hartford, Connecticut. And I particularly invited Marcel to come not only because of his expertise in photography, but also because he didn't believe one word about ghosts or hauntings. And it was Marcel's complete skepticism that made what happened next so interesting. Whatever powers there were at Barahak, quantum physical, paranormal, supernatural, or whatever feeble word you want to pin on them, seemed to take an interest in Marcel from the moment he got within a mile of the place. The first incident occurred as we rode toward the lost village in Marcel's car on the afternoon of October 30th. Between the village of Abington, Connecticut, and the site, there was a certain fork in the road. One must bear left to get to Barahack. But when I pointed that out, Marcel stated with alarm that he could not turn the wheel. At the very last moment, the wheel snapped to the left. As we held our collective breath, the car made the turn seemingly on two wheels, but almost ended up in the bushes in the process. Maybe it was nothing, just one of those things. Autumn had come to Barahack. The feeling of poignancy, I was now convinced that's what it was, and not sadness, was more pronounced than before, although the background noise seemed much less than we had experienced on our original trip in August. After re-examining the area that afternoon for any evidence of fraud or other site tampering, we returned at dusk to see what we could see or hear what we could hear. We got much more than we expected. But, oh, I think we have yeah, to... Yeah, okay, yeah. Well, I'm sorry. We're going to pause for commercial break right now. Stay with us on Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on CBS News Sky Radio as we continue our trek to Barahak, the village of voices. Be right back. Enlighten. Empower. Enrich. This is CBS Radio's The New Sky. New horizons. No boundaries.
Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOUL. New SkyRadio.com. And we are back and we're discussing the eventful night of October 30th, 1971 at the cemetery of the Village of Voices in Pomfret, Connecticut. Leaving two of the men at the cellar halls, that was Bob Zachary and Louis Latender, our good friend to this day. Uh, they left them at the cellar halls above the brook to see if they could record those children again. They had a somewhat sensitive, more sensitive tape recorder than we'd had on the first trip. Uh, the rest of us started toward the cemetery. It was quite dark with a pale, waxing moon. And by the time we reached what should have been the little burying ground, uh, we, we, we couldn't find it, to, to make a long story short. Try, try as we might, spotlights... Uh, all kinds of, of and we had, had very we're very familiar with the area had mapped it we knew where things were but the cemetery wasn't there and again uh, it had vanished back at the cellar holes uh, Zach as we called them and Latender were having troubles of their own it seemed that something had pulled Zach's knit cap off his head a flashlight revealed the cap was neatly folded and lodged on a branch high overhead they were trying to get it down when we radioed to them Zach didn't get his hat back until the next day. Anyway, the two of them dropped what they were doing and joined us. All six of us then moved into the black stillness toward the cemetery. As we came to a spot that the next day proved to be not more than a 100 feet from the entrance, I turned around and saw that Louis and Marcel had stopped. The rest of us turned back to see what was wrong, only to find Marcel huffing and puffing as if he were ill. He complained of a dry throat and the sensation of terrible coldness. His skin was clammy to the touch. It would be an unfamiliar, perhaps terrifying feeling for people today, but in that area before, era, I should say, before cell phones, we were cut off from the world. We were in the middle of the woods, in the middle of the night, and I was afraid that Marcel was having a heart attack. He was only in his mid-thirties. I strongly suggested that all of us leave, but he professed and protested that he was all right and wanted to go on, but that he couldn't go on. Four of us found it physically impossible to pull him forward or to the left, the direction of the cemetery. He seemed rooted to the ground. At the same time, he found it quite easy to move backwards and to the right, entirely on his own. Suddenly, Marcel, this paragon of skepticism, broke out in a cold sweat once again and began to sob so hard that he doubled over onto his walking stick. A few of us started to pray out loud, which seemed to ease Marcel's condition a little. He didn't know why, he said, but something was telling him that we must not proceed to the cemetery that night. He wanted to go on, but sensed that we must not. That was when we heard the voices. It was a group of men that wouldn't, couldn't have been more than ten feet away in the direction of the cemetery. We could see nothing. All we could hear was the rising and falling of muttered conversation. We couldn't make out what was being said, but we agreed that it did sound like English. On this occasion, I couldn't tell who these men were, but I got the impression of a funeral, and I got a very strong feeling that they knew somehow that we were there, even if they just sensed our presence. We all stood in shock and listened. Then our attention was yanked back to Marcel, who had begun another bout of sobbing. That was it. We were out of there. Someone or something seemed to have gone to a great deal of trouble to keep us away from Barahack Cemetery that night, for what reason we will never know. I got no impression of negativity or hostility, was someone trying to protect us? Was there physical danger? There were known to be some poisonous snakes in that area. I just mentioned the Lorraine Warren running into a copperhead and turning back. 
Now, they are uh, active nocturnally right during much of the year, as far as I know. Yeah. Were there one or more of those in the cemetery that night? I don't know. Marcel said later that he, quote, felt as if possessed, unquote, during that experience. Because the next day was Halloween, our team became open game for publicity, and we appeared on the local WYNY radio in nearby Putnam. That was my first radio appearance, actually. And uh, the reporter was David Silverman, who had been alerted to us by Harry Chase. The uh, audience got an earful with the story of the previous night's events. We all kind of chuckled. Uh, when uh, Mr. Silverman asked Marcel, uh, Mr. Mercier, uh, has this experience changed your opinion about the supernatural? Uh, somewhat, yes, Marcel replied. I could still hear him. It was great. The super skeptic. The next day, we decided to make one more trip back to the Village of Voices because of that uncanny feeling of personal solidarity with the inhabitants. Now, I hadn't talked to the guys about what I was feeling inside about this and the incredible sense of identity with this place that I was feeling. It was a feeling that had taken hold also of, of some of the others, although n- not anywhere near to, to the degree it had with me. But everyone, we felt compassion for these people. So anyway, on that gray, chilly Sunday afternoon of October's last day, we again gathered at Barahack's little cemetery, which we had no trouble finding in the daylight. We brought a book of rather generic prayers and read them together as we sat on the stone steps to the cemetery. I read out loud while the rest, especially Marcel, listened as though in deep thought. Now, as soon as I finished praying, several simple things happened. Maybe it was a coincidence, but the praying lifted our spirits, and we felt we knew those of our invisible companions who may or may not have realized we were there. Out came the sun. All sorts of birds suddenly started singing. Not very common on November 1st, uh, or I should say October 31st. Uh, They began to sing, and we'd never heard so much as a chirp before. All at once, it seemed, the sense of poignancy lifted and was gone. As we left the cemetery with lighter hearts ambling down the path toward the cellar holes, we heard a sound that would be burned into our memories forever. It was a sound that changed my thinking and my life. It was an experience that I've mentioned many times on the air. It was that simple rumbling of that old ox cart and the shouts of a team driver proceeding through the woods to our right in a dense and completely impassable section. We could hear the deep rattle of the wheels, the hoofbeats of the draft horses or the oxen, whatever they were. As this wagon passed invisibly, not 30 feet away, we heard the crack of a whip and the guy yelling, Yeah! One of the Randalls. I knew it was one of the Randalls. I knew it was as certainly as I knew my own name. All of us heard this wagon. Finally, the sounds faded off to our left. For a long time afterward, Harry Chase and others indicated that things were very quiet at Barahack. By way of a follow-up, several of us, including Marcel, returned to the Lost Village in June of 1972. With the landowner's permission, we spent more than 30 hours at the Village of Voices and camped at the cemetery entrance, and everything was very peaceful. Now, of course, these sounds have returned, and many uh, of, of our, well, if you want to say friends and colleagues who are in this field, have been there and have reported, some have reported even the phantom ox cart driver. Now, the question, of course, always remains, what happened to me at Barahack? What did it tell us about God and the dead? Strange as it may sound, I saw God very clearly at Barahack in much that happened there, especially the love and solidarity I felt for the people we couldn't see and the closeness my companions and I felt after the experience. Now, of course, the obvious answer to this issue, many of you are probably thinking, is, aha, you're the reincarnation of one of these guys. That's why I felt... That I, was, I didn't feel as though I was home. I felt part of things. It was different. And I don't believe in reincarnation in the classic sense. I believe in parallel lives rather than 
past lives or future lives or whatever. I think they were happening all at the same time. And you might say, well, that's six of one half dozen of the other. Well, maybe it is. But I don't think that's the explanation, what I was feeling there. But it's what I didn't see at Barahak that changed my whole perspective. I didn't see death. I couldn't explain it then, and it made no sense. But I knew from the minute I stepped into that lost village that I was dealing with life, though in a form and a manner that would be new to me. Even those crumbling gravestones with a familiar name spoke to me of life. For me, Barahak was not the beginning of my career as a ghost hunter. It was the beginning of my life as as a cosmic sojourner, which Ben, uh, I'm very happy and proud to say, has joined. Yeah. So here's what pop paranormal research would say happened to us at Barahak. Much of what happened there, especially the everyday voices and sounds from the past, were, would be chalked up probably to this residual haunting thing. And I've always asked, you know, as I say, I was an early advocate of that, but uh, years later I asked, well, the residual haunting recorded on what? Trees? They weren't even there in the 1800s. Rocks? They were dug up and moved constantly over the village's occupied years. Even the soil of a given place changes all the time. Now, uh, while I suppose that residual hauntings are theoretically possible, I believe it's more of a we-can't-think-of-anything-better explanation for those that don't understand it. And I've yet to see a, con- a convincing residual haunting simply because I've yet to see one that I can't change by actual direct contact uh, with the actual event as it is actually happening in a parallel world. I think that's what's happening. Now, I've yet to find one, again, that can't be explained as a stuck intersection between two world membranes, or B-R-A-N-E-S, brains, as physicists say. And as I say, in several classic residual cases over the years, I've actually managed to change the things by detaching the brains. Classic ghost hunters would also explain Marcel Mercier's hard-to-turn steering wheel and cemetery experiences, and suggest he was actually having mediumistic episodes with an intelligent haunting, quote-unquote, and was warned by the earthbound spirits of the dead residents still active. Well, an intelligent haunting caused by what? How could a human being without a body still be a complete human being with all thoughts, memories, knowledge? It's all one big contradiction. It, uh, to me, I, that's that's well put. I, I use a hundred words to say what you could say in two. How can such a half-being have the power to manipulate time and space in the physical world, let alone coordinate and interact not only with us but with other half-beings? I don't buy it. That invisible wagon driver opened the floodgates to questions that would lead my paranormal studies into an entirely different direction. If we were dealing with spirits of the dead, why did we hear wagons, cattle, crack of a whip? Are there ghosts of wooden wheels, oxen, horses, and whips? Why did we hear the people of the village apparently going about their daily routines rather than moaning, shrieking, or rattling chains? Residual haunting? Intelligent haunting? Not good enough. Not good enough. If I ever run into Mr. Randall and his wagon team again, I'm going to let him know I'm there. be an interesting day for him, whether or not we manage to detach the membranes. Hello, cousin from across the centuries. So anyway, after 40 years of further paranormal research and experiences from the inside, here's my explanation. Uh, which we'll get right after we have a commercial break. We'll be right back. Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on CBS News Sky Radio, NewSkyRadio.com. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Sue Lundquist. I want to help you to embrace the life you've always envisioned. Listen to us on the I'm Thankful Network, Monday through Friday. Listeners from all the backgrounds come together as we identify the truly important aspects of life. The I'm Thankful Network is like comfort food for the soul. In short, we want you to be positively positive about where you are headed. Join us every weekday for the I'm Thankful Network. Fun, educational, and empowering. Tune in to find yourself all over again. 
PBS Radio's The New Sky. On the web now. Log on. NewSkyRadio.com. Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call me. 248-545-SOUL. NewSkyRadio.com. Believe. Okay. The Village of Voices case. Ben? What happens? What happens? I don't know. Well, you basically, in your own opinion, or in mine, our opinion together, mm-hmm. would be it was just a cu- couple of worlds that were overlapping into ours. And you got to experience your relatives who actually knew you were there, since more than likely, if you're related to one of them, you're related to most everybody else in the village somehow. Yeah, you know, that, that's, that's probably true. Yeah. So if, they, if your theory is correct in the fact that so, like this connection and bond with people stretches ac- across the worlds, then more than likely they knew you were there and they could feel the presence. Although they were probably just like, oh, it's like an angel or something. I don't want to. Well, yeah, I think a lot of them might have known we were there, just like some of our guys knew they were there. Yeah, you know, kind of in their hearts, couldn't put their finger on it, but down deep they knew it. Yeah. Uh, I'd go, I'd go you one better. I'd say these boundaries of Barahak only thinly separated, because as you said, a number of parallel worlds. Only one of which was our conscious reality, and, and their conscious reality might have been more aware of us in some of those worlds than the other. And when you couldn't other. find it, you slipped into another one. Well, that's it. There, I think there were times when we were more in their world than they were in ours. Like when we were standing at the cemetery, we were at a funeral. That cemetery was not there. It was like the first funeral that had ever taken place there. These guys felt something weird, and they, they were muttering about it. And they felt us 200 years later. That's pretty trippy. Yeah. I think that's exactly what happened. I like it. Yeah. Um, and uh, they continue their daily routines and all these. Well, that, that's why these things are, are really still reported there. Uh, I think every instant of life at Barahak and every one of its people is still going on in one or more of these parallel worlds, just like it is for the rest of us. Exactly. Um, but you know the difference there, I think? Here, we're distracted by our own daily lives. We're running around crazy all the time. There's all stuff to do. We don't notice it. At Barahak, it's quiet. All you had are the Katie dids, no birds, nothing. Well you, the, well, you also had less to do. I mean, like, you you spent a couple hours of the day working, and the rest of the day you just relax, smoke a pipe, chill out. Who, me? No, bear a hack. I was going to say, I didn't smoke a pipe then. Anyway, no, but it, but you're right. There, were, there was no distraction, so you noticed these things much more clearly. Yes. And those like yourself who are masters of meditation. That would cost of a master. Well, to me, yeah, you're awesome to me. And Aww. And you, you have you know these abilities to, to quiet yourself and your surroundings. This is when you begin to notice what life is really all about, and that is where you are in all these different worlds, becoming bigger, being the super person you really are. Super mentioned, except not yeah, evil. exactly, yeah, that's it. Uh, but of course, this um, doesn't explain the apparent interaction necessarily between Marcel and the powers that were at Bear Heck. Okay, how do parallel worlds? Describe the steering wheel incident or Marcel's semi-paralysis or sobbing near the cemetery. Well, it, I think it, it does a very good job of explaining it. These worlds are not separate and distinct. They inter- interact at all times in all sorts of unexpected ways, and quantum physics indicates three additional factors. First, anything that is possible or conceivable actually exists in one or more parallel worlds. Second, the laws of physics may vary, sometimes wildly, from world to world. And third, we ourselves live in many worlds at once, as we just said. And it can be drawn from this that death in the multiverse is utterly non-existent, even for the body. 
And because in many of these worlds, these people were aware of us, maybe caring for us in some ways, maybe trying to keep us from the cemetery that like night. It's like a test of the even body thing, because that one time when we were filming that teaser thing or whatever we were doing, and I felt like I was slipping into the ground. In November, yeah. I remember that. Well, yeah, well, will you see the footage. I don't think you haven't seen it yet. Wait, what? You have it? No, I don't have it. No, no, no. I say I'm, I'm sure you haven't oh. watched it and, and seen where the camera was placed when that was happening to you. Uh, I think it's going to be quite something. Oh, all right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, so um, anyway, all of uh, all of this hit myself. The most skeptical and the least open-minded, and I dare say one of the most sensitive, if you want to say psychic, of us. It hit him the hardest because he didn't believe it, he didn't accept it, and bingo, there it was. It's uh, that's really terrifying for somebody, I think. Yeah. So um, anyway, like if you look at it, look at like the color red the next day, it's like blue and it still says red on the bottom of it. You're like what? <laughs> exactly. Now, what about Harry's photo of the see-through legs? Well, I think that's simple too. Harry's camera happened to catch a moving world boundary or BRANE. On one side, the two friends were sitting there, and the other, they weren't. The camera caught them in two worlds at once. Uh, I think, and that happens all the time. We have a number of, of yeah. different uh, examples of that. And what about this sense of love and solidarity that knocked me for a loop and affected all of us? Uh, this is where it gets real deep. Uh, thinking the multiverse idea, you know, goes farther than it ever has yet. At Barahak, I came closer than ever to a parallel world where I am a resident of Barahak. So in a way, you want to call it reincarnation? Well, no, it, 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 it's... I have to think of a word for this. It's much deeper than that. It's it much is. deeper than that. It's identity. Physical identity, too. Uh, it's everything. Exactly. They're long dead in our reality, but living elsewhere and elsewhere, and gives entirely new meaning to the words eternal life. Maybe I actually am my cousin Jonathan, and Higginbotham, Jim Stoddard, Calvin Palmer, well, and so I many others. is not the right word. We. We. Exactly. I, I, I can't wait to get you over there and uh, see oh, what you think. It's going to be wicked fun. And the multiverse, maybe all of us are one. That's why I felt what I felt and the way we feel that we feel. It's the big secret. It's not about you, it's about us. Well, not us personally. Well, no, it's <laughs> all, about, all of it's us about, together. It's not about you, it's not about me, it's about all of us together. Yeah. One. Send money. No, anyway. Yeah, give us money. <laughs> we'll give you more advice. Anyway, so there we are. But that's, uh, that's how it goes, and we're down to one minute. So I want to thank our producer, Will Kosnick. We'll see you next Sunday, February 27th, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 Pacific. NewSkyRadio.com and CBS News Sky Radio. Ben and I will welcome Ohio-based speaker, broadcaster, and writer Bobby Nelson to hear how we, I should say he, once a dedicated, true-believing ghost hunter, became a skeptic. Okay, in the meantime, tune into our New England Drive Time show on WON 1240 AM, com at 6 p.m. Eastern every Monday. And okay. you can follow our podcasts on our show website, www.behindtheparanormal.com. In the meantime, we leave you with a quote from that lovable old Greek philosopher Plato. Quote, the learning and knowledge that we have is, at the most, but little compared with, with that of which we are ignorant. My unquote. least favorite philosopher. Thank you for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>